Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Control Alt Azure. I'm Tobias. I'm back again with UC. What's up? Good morning, Tobias. Having my first cup of coffee, so bear with me while the caffeine is, is being ingested. I am wrapping up the year. It's Christmas soon. I haven't really had time to reflect yet on the past 12 months, which I typically do around this time of the year. And I haven't had time to reflect on the next 12 months. I'd like to set some some goals and, and, and targets and aspirations for the upcoming year. But I have time for that in the next couple of weeks, because in the Nordics, I think most Nordic countries, they typically sort of shut down from December 20th, December 22nd to around January 6th or January 8th. So there's about two and a half weeks of sort of meta working or having a real vacation. But for me, two major milestones, one being growing the security related business that I that I started last year uh, beyond my expectations and also achieving a couple of personal records at the gym. And I've come to the realization that the more weight you can manage, the higher the goals for the next year. So progressive overload both for business and in the gym. I'd love to hear that. So congrats on the on the security business going well. Um, love to hear that. On the gym, I, I also broke a record now of being sick nine weeks in a row. So I haven't been able to work out for nine weeks. That's a new record for me. So I'm also setting some PRs as we go. Um, on, on my end, as of this recording, uh, I'm rounding up the year. I know this is probably happening sometime late January when you're listening to it. Uh, so right now I'm looking forward to the Christmas holiday, even though it might already have passed um, as you tune in. I don't have any extensive leave. Um, I'm I'm going to be, you know, after New Year's, I'll be right back at it. Um, and that's because I'm going to go on my very first ski trip in late January. So I'll probably break a bone and perhaps my confidence too. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to this kind of slow holiday season with no work now for a couple of weeks. And you know, just recharging so I can go and enjoy my very first ski trip. So my my partner, she has been skiing since she was a kid. So she knows that, you know, ground up. She will just jump out in the snow and, and she's like an acrobat. Me and the kids, we never ever had our feet in a pair of skis. So it's gonna be interesting to see how this works out. Uh, I will return with a preliminary report of injuries uh, after that trip. Sounds good. So is that going to be downhill skiing, cross-country skiing, or a mix? Uh, it's a great question. It's going to be ski. So I rented the all in packets. There's an Alpine Alpine cabin with a, a sauna, which you're going to like, of of course, and you know all the stuff. And it's in the slopes, so I think you can go out from there and just start skiing downhill and there's this ski lift system so that it lifts you up and then you go down so i think that's downhill skiing not sure if they also have the the flat kind of cross-country skiing because obviously that's i'm saying that's easy uh, because it, it doesn't have the quick turns and you need to be able to break and stuff like that so if they have that i'll definitely try that out uh, it's going to be great exercise as well but I, I think like the most of the th thing here is around the lift systems and you go up the lift and then you go down the hill one way or the other. Uh, for me, I'm probably going to put a rope on the skis. So whenever I fall and the skis, they fly off my boots, and they're going to come with me as I roll down the hill. Uh, so I'm, I'm probably going to try both. 
I, I feel the most crucial thing with downhill skiing is to locate the the premises for the ski bistro, so you can go there and and, and have a hot chocolate <laughs> with with mint and alcohol. I'm and, done. <laughs> yeah, I am done. No more After the first for me. first downhill, half the half the way down, I'm probably gonna fall and break a collarbone or something like that, and I'm like, nope. <laughs> Where's the pub? <laughs> exactly. Alrighty, today's episode is about designing architectures for Azure. So we felt it would be interesting to sort of think through a bit on what is included when you're designing and visualizing architectures, perhaps for a deployment, maybe for a project, or perhaps there's something you just want to fix in your existing deployment. So a bit on the thinking, the tools, the experiences, and 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 the visualization as as well. So top of mind, Toby, for you, when somebody's asking you, could you kindly visualize or design an architecture? What what comes to mind? Uh, that's a great question. Um, it's it's a pretty broad range. Like for me, it's always a step back. It's not about how do you implement an architecture, but it's what is the business requirement. What is it that we're trying to achieve? Uh, take a step back and understand the holistic picture of our business goals. When you understand that and how this project will tie into that, it's going to be a lot more easy to uh, navigate the landscape and figure out what is the most relevant architecture for this piece of um, technology that we're trying to implement right now. So I think for me, that's number one. Think about the business use cases, uh, the business justifications. Why are we doing this? Like why? Do we want to build an architecture for whatever it is? And how is it going to support the business? When we understand that, navigating uh, the various options for building architectures becomes slightly easier. It's never easy, right? In a complex enterprise, in a complex business, it's not really easy to navigate how to build architectures. There's a lot of compromise. There's a lot of trade-offs. There's a lot of kind of insights you need to have and understand cost versus other things. So, So number one, figure out the use cases like why are we building it because oftentimes in projects uh you know before my my current role in 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 projects and also as a consultant it was hey we need to build this and you'd ask why do you need this well we need it right and you couldn't find the business justification and they said it needs to be highly available but it should also be cost optimized that's not possible you cannot lower the cost as much as you want but also have it deployed in three regions and be highly available with, you know, an SLA with five nines. It's impossible. So I think number one for me, business use cases, how does it fit into the kind of holistic plan of what we want to achieve as a business? And then from there, um, you know, we, we can start figuring out the tools, the components, the actual technical implementation options we have, stuff like that. Um, so that that's usually how I think about it. Like take the step back, understand the big picture and uh, make notes of that because when you can paint that picture painting the picture of the architecture becomes a lot easier in my experience i like the thinking here years and years ago when i truly got started as a consultant and at the same time designing system architectures uh i was working in a project with a super senior project manager at the time and and what he once drew on a whiteboard was a triangle and he said well you you have you have really three dimensions here so you have time you have resources and you have a budget and one of these you can modify typically the other two are stuck 
And at the time, I was like, yeah, 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 whatever. Let's let's get to technology. Let, let's get to building and installing and deploying. I don't really care about any of this. But the older I get, the more I get to work on complex, challenging, typically enterprise projects, but obviously smaller projects as well, the more I come back and reflect on stuff like this. So what's what's the sort of the goal? What resources do we have in terms of people and in terms of knowledge, in terms of organizational support? What's the budget? And and typically budget is is always too tight, but then resources might not be there either. So then you're already setting up yourself for a slight failure. And then you need to do something before you actually open Azure portal and start doing the fancy stuff in there. For architectures, I spend a few minutes thinking about this episode to sort of figure out what sort of architectures come at play typically with customer deployments and, and, and projects that, that require Azure. And, and we have a few. Let me start with the first one. Let's see if we can find any thoughts on this one. This is fairly rare. I, I would say this is like, like finding a unicorn nowadays, net new architectures. So you have a organization that says, hey, you see, we want to go to Azure. We have nothing. We have no tenants. We have no subscriptions. Do you need a credit card? And this is more rare these days. Uh, are you seeing this any longer? Or is your assumption that everybody's already in the cloud? Everybody already has Azure, so we don't really do net new. That's a great question. Um, let's put it this way. In the Nordics, where both of us are, my experience when I was a consultant and working in other roles was that most companies are already in the cloud one way or the other. Uh, you know, you might have hybrid because of data security and compliance. Some companies and governments and, uh, you know, for for various reasons, you couldn't have data in the cloud and still can't for, for some organizations or governments. Um, since I joined Microsoft, I've been exposed to quite a different view because it's now I get the global customer base. I understand, you know, the challenges for customers across the globe, not just, you know, how it works in Scandinavia or our parts of Europe, but also, you know, across the entire globe. And what I do see is that there's a lot of migration projects happening going from on-prem to the cloud. So there's a lot of migration projects and we're talking about, you know, anything from, hey, we've got 25 VMs we need to migrate to, hey, we've got 10,000 VMs we need to migrate. How do we how do we get that done? We have a, a data center or we have five data centers and we're going to migrate all of them, which is pretty cool, right? It's significant undertakings to do. So that does happen. Uh, you know, I cannot put a percentage, obviously, uh, because I don't work in the field like that. I can put a percentage on how many of the projects and that are being run are net new migrations from on-prem to the cloud and how many are between clouds. Because another thing that that we see and, and that we hear a lot about on social media and when people write about it online is multi-cloud migration. So customers that are now operating multi-cloud, you have maybe Azure, AWS, and Google Cloud. And they say, well, we're now going to ditch one of the cloud providers and we're going to migrate to another. So kind of consolidating things instead of being multi-cloud. Um, so that's also another type of migration that I hear a lot about is how do we, it's not just net new, but also we're already in the cloud, but we're moving to a different cloud or we're just kind of reshuffling or rebalancing the portfolio in the cloud, in our multi-cloud setup. And usually customers 
might have identity in one platform. So let's say you use Microsoft Entra um, as your kind of identity platform, but then you have resources deployed in AWS and GCP and Azure, you know, and then you kind of rebalance where things are deployed. So um, I do agree that we don't hear as much, hey, let's go to the cloud because we're only on-prem, but it does happen. Uh, and it also, to you know, and this is not scientific, but it, it looks like it's happening more outside of Scandinavia where the cloud maturity, if we want to call it that, is pretty high. And the size of the companies here are also significantly smaller than most companies that we see, like international companies existing in 50 countries, whatever. Um, yeah, so that's some top of mind reflections on that. When you when you said multi-cloud, that reminded me of a, of a meeting I had about four weeks ago, and somebody said in the meeting, yeah, yeah, let's let's do Azure and and this and this and this, but then we did multi-cloud, and mentally I was already at AWS, perhaps Google Cloud, but for sure no Alibaba, and then then they said, yeah, we are thinking of Oracle Cloud. I'm like, hold on, what? Yeah, that exists, <laughs> and I did my last. Oracle database deployment in 2007. And I promised myself, I will never, ever, ever go back to working on any Oracle platform. So I might have to eat my words in the future, but let's see how that, that goes. Yep. <laughs> For other architecture approaches, so net new was that one adding something new. And this is quite common. We already have Azure, we have Entro ID, we have Microsoft 365, we have this and this and this. But now we need something new. So don't rebuild what we already have, but augment or expand our existing platform with something else. Perhaps a company needs Microsoft Fabric for a data warehouse and integration deployment thingy, which is like a separate project within the company, but it simply utilizes what's already out there. And I, I feel this is quite common and it's it's hard often to anticipate what's the complexity of the architecture because it might be that well we have this and this and this but we are not really supposed to show you all of that because it's not relevant for you what's relevant for you is entry is here this is the subscription this is the resource group get to it and then you're sort of designing something without really knowing what's around you and and that's fine but it will often bite you back when you learn that well, you have these sort of policies, these sort of these sort of management group groups, and other invisible settings and setups that you are not made aware of because you only focus on that one resource group. Yeah, and this is something that I I get exposed to as well, and I hear a lot where you have workload owners, if you want to call them that, like you're designing a solution. And, and or a workload, which in this case means maybe an Azure function or an AKS deployment together with a SQL server or a storage account and a key vault, you know, a, a couple of different services combined uh, creating a workload. And you have no visibility into anything else that goes on in Azure. You just get exactly what you say. Hey, you get a resource group or you get a specific area um, with access to contribute resources and create resources in that very specific area, but you don't see the full picture. You don't see how that ties into the rest. So that could be into an application landing zone. That could be into something that fits into the kind of big, bigger picture that you already have deployed. And, and that's also perfectly fine. Uh, I think the, the key thing is, again, trying to understand the business requirements, trying to understand the kind of variables you have. Like you mentioned, the triangle. 
what are the budgets here? Uh, what is this supposed to be able uh, to give us in return? What is the performance? What is the cost? Does it need to have high availability? What's the reliability targets we need? All these things are important considerations when you create something, you know, even if it's net new, and if you expand on your existing platform. Um, so I, th I think that's a, you know, it's relevant reflections, something just to keep in mind whenever you go to the cloud and um, like taking the 10,000 feet view on architectures like we're doing here. And I love this approach, like net new, um, does that happen? What does it look like? Adding new stuff. We already have something. How do we expand it? There's reflections around all these things. Uh, another thing that comes to mind is when you need to kind of reshuffle what's already there. Um, and I know you've been exposed to this a couple of times as well in projects, like you come into a project and uh, the customer says, well, we're going to do this, but it doesn't work because we have deployed things like that. And then you have to take a step back again and see, okay, this is what you're trying to achieve. This is what you've already deployed and the current infrastructure or the current kind of cloud deployment doesn't support your new requirements. So then you have to kind of reorganize what you have as well. So any, any thoughts on, on that angle? Yeah, the, the reorganization, I feel that's probably the most challenging ones out of the, the total of four options that we're talking here, mostly because there's often a lot of technical depth, a lot of stuff that, that you don't know ahead of time. You have to study, you have to learn on that one. And again, you don't have an endless amount of time. Then somebody might say, well, you we thought you were the expert. You knew everything about Azure. Yes, but this is a custom build. So I really need to dive deep into understanding what you've already built. Uh, landing zones often come into play here. Perhaps there's a bunch of subscriptions. There's multiple entry IDs. There's a lot of workloads deployed in numerous different ways. And then the thinking goes, well, let's let's do an enterprise landing zone because there's a reference architecture from Microsoft for that, which is great. But what I often also say is that it is a reference architecture, but it's taken at face value. Let's just pick this up. Let's copy paste this two into our design. And well, now we have a landing zone, right? Well, sort of, but at the same time, you're adding a lot of moving parts, a lot of complexity while reorganizing the previous stuff in there. And again, time, you don't have enough of that. Budget, you typically don't have enough of that. And then you need to cut something out, perhaps, to make it work. And the last bit out of these sort of main pillars in architectures, I feel, is mergers and acquisitions. So we have an existing platform that could perhaps be a landing zone, but now there's an acquisition of another company they have their entry ID, their identity considerations, their workloads, their security, their access, their setups. And you need to lift and shift or carve out or transform or migrate or do something and bring certain workloads to your existing perhaps landing zone or existing environment. And I feel this is the most joyful one because you are sort of in uncharted territories trying to understand what's already there how do we make it compatible here? But this is also the one that seems to take the most time in, ten, in, 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 in calendar time, because it's hard to say, well, let's just shut that down and bring it here. No, no, we have to plan for each of the steps here. Alrighty, so those four options, any thoughts on reorganizing or mergers and acquisitions approach? Yeah, so the M&A mergers and acquisitions, I've been part of a couple of those projects in the past. 
you know, many moons ago. And it's it's always a little bit messy uh, because, you know, what I mentioned before, take a step back and understand the business value. You need to do that here. So let's just say that not because you're an architect doesn't mean you can understand how to properly fit a, a new entire company into this business because it's not just about the technology. When you do an M&A or a merger and acquisition with another company, it's not just about the technology. Hey, they're in AWS, we just bought that company, we're gonna put them into Azure. You know, that's, there's gonna be a culture clash uh, when you do that. And I've seen this happen over and over and over, not just on like, hey, we acquired a different team, we acquired a different company, we're gonna get them into our kind of culture, which is, or merge the cultures so we can benefit from, you know, the, the good things from one another, which is awesome. That's more the organizational alignment and how do we drive that as leaders in the company as well. But then there's technology as well, right? If you if you get another company in and say, hey, we're now going to expand our cloud, cloud portfolio with everything that this company had and we're going to merge that in, that does come with a lot of challenges. Because it may or may not be the same cloud provider, may not even be in the cloud, might be on-prem, which brings you back to the first thing. Hey, this is net new. We need to get it into Azure. Um, so there's a lot of considerations around those things. And I, I think like we could talk about this forever, of course. And I think the consultant answer here is the only right answer, that all of this depends. Like There is always different variables. And these variables will look different for every single company, for every single project in every company for every workload design that you do in every company, this is gonna look different. So always keep in mind that there is no like one solution or one approach saying, hey, we always use landing zones or hey, we always do this or we always use intra ID and we just push everything in. That's not how reality works for most companies. So it's always about asking the right questions at the right altitude and understand what do we want to achieve? What is the business goal? In this case, we bought a company, we're gonna get them in. The business goal is to get all the users, to get all the technology, all the deployments, whatever it is. And, you know, maybe it's a SaaS company. There's a bunch of SaaS offerings. We need to get those in under our umbrella here. That comes with a lot of challenges. The only way, by my experience, you can figure that out is, is by asking the right and relevant questions. You know, what technology are being used? Why are we doing this? Which components do we need to keep? Is there a reason to keep anything existing in the other cloud if, if it is a different cloud or on-prem if it is on-prem? What is the reasoning it's on-prem? Is it data privacy, data protection? Is it regulatory compliance? Is it sovereignty, data sovereignty saying, hey, this is now located in you know, Germany in the uh, one of the protected Azure clouds in Germany, for example, and it cannot leave? Well, then you have kind of that consideration as well. So all of these things comes with a lot of considerations and, and questions. So my, my best tip for all of these things is ask the right and relevant questions um, and as my teachers told me in fourth grade, you may ask a question today and feel dumb in the moment in front of the class. But if you don't ask the relevant questions today, you might be dumb the rest of your life. I took that at face value. I ask dumb questions every day, but I'm a lot smarter for it. So keep that in mind. That's a, that's a nice lesson for sure. So then moving on from sort of the top level thinking in architectures is visualization. And I've always loved visualizing architectures. What goes where, what sort of errors and boxes and rectangles can we, can we actually do? But what I feel is perhaps the best value from here is that it's easier to communicate your thinking when you have 
a picture or multiple pictures of a setup. And what I, what I like to do is I like to do a fairly quick mock-up of the initial thinking. Okay, this is the current status. This is where we're headed. And I always sort of give a disclaimer that this is not an exact plan. If you see an arrow going from AD to intro ID, it doesn't mean that it's one way or it doesn't mean that there's no encryption or it doesn't mean there's no boundary set. But the thinking is that this is the goal. Now we design on that one, but at least we have that visualized. For visualizing architectures, plenty of tools. For me, 90% of the time, it's PowerPoint. It's fast, it's all always there. Everybody has that, so it's easy to share, easy to take screenshots on. And it's just uh, restricting you enough to keep those visualizations in one page typically. So you can do the big architecture in one slide, then you can break that into pieces in the following slides. For you, Toby, if, if, if you needed to design an architecture, be it net new or reorganize or, or whatever else, what, what tools would you use? Or is it just PowerPoint for you as well? It is where I, I give the the buzzword answer of, hey, I use AI now to generate the diagrams for me. I, I just <laughs> say, hey, I of need course. a complex architecture supporting this and that. And then, hey, mid-journey paints a picture. <laughs> so I I use PowerPoint to some extent as well. And what I like about it is you cannot, well, you can, but it's oftentimes you don't make pretty diagrams. It's a good idea to use for sketching and for collaboration, collaborating and, and just getting like ideas on paper. And then from there, when we decided, okay, this actually is a, a sound strategy, this is what we want to do. From that point, I might go into Visio and just make a real uh, vector graphic out of it with the right kind of Azure stencils and plug that in um, to put a nice design graphic on it. Uh, or now, you know, conveniently enough, I can hand it off to someone who is a great designer and say, hey, here's the conceptual architecture. We need to get this implemented in you know, a, a better format and we can get that. But when I do these things, PowerPoint, like you mentioned, yes, Visio, I still use Visio and more and more so in the browser, but I still use it. Uh, and there's also this uh, old draw.io, which is now called diagrams.net. So if you go to draw.io, you'll end up on app.diagrams.net, I think it is, which is an online version of just drawing diagrams really easily. Um, I've used that for a couple of years as well. It's really nice. And you can also import Visio um stencils and diagrams into that which is good so if you've got a saved visio thing you can you can plug that in there uh, and it works with svg and then like vector graphics and stuff like that so i think those are my kind of main venues when it comes to designing but i, I talk about the different altitudes like are you doing a conceptual like implement are you ideating is this about figuring out what an architecture can look like PowerPoint, super easy. Bam, bam, put a couple of boxes, make a couple of arrows, have a discussion. Is this something that's reasonable? When it becomes more tangible, where we say, yeah, this is actually probably what we want, that's when I can move it into Visio or something else, which makes it more kind of comprehensible to the reader. So if we would present this now to someone else outside of our team or outside of you know the company, they'd be able to read it and say, all right, now I, I figure, figured out what this is about. So PowerPoint Visio for me, draw.io or diagrams.net comes to mind as well. 
we we had a discussion within within my company on the use of Visio, and I had a couple of colleagues, and they said, yeah, yeah, we need the Visio, let's get the license for that. And there's there's a trial for I think 25 users for a month, and I've been using Visio since the very first versions, and I I just let go with Visio myself because you fight with the arrows, with the positioning, with the pixel perfect <laughs> approach too much in Visio. So my colleagues, they got Visio, and after two weeks, they went, yeah, let's let's not use Visio, <laughs> let's use something mm. else. So PowerPoint quite often, uh, Draw.io, I like it. I dislike that it's, it's in the browser. I think there's an app for that as well, but it feels like a PWA sort of app. And then there's Azure Diagrams, I think, which is a web app for for creating Azure diagrams based on Azure Advisor and whatnot. I've, I've tried that out a couple of times, but it's holding my hand a little bit too much for me to like it. For PowerPoint and Draw.io and Visio as well, stencils, obviously you're going to be needing those. Azure stencils readily available. Just go to your favorite search engine, type in Azure stencils, you get that. But I rarely use those either. If if I need the new Entra ID icon, the stencils might be outdated, or it takes me two minutes to find that because you have 2,000 files in a directory with the stencils. What I use is super old school. Google Images, I search for Entra ID transparent icon. Pick up the first one, ensure it's .microsoft.com so I can steal or copy that one, and then just use that. And often you end up with one slide with a lot of icons, and that becomes sort of your template for future visualizations of the architectures. Okay, so moving on from visualizing to sort of the thinking, and I think we've tackled plenty of these things already, but a couple of points perhaps here. I sometimes browse the Azure Architecture Center because there's reference architectures for everything. And I get inspiration from that, and I'm perhaps looking at something that have I considered all the angles in my design that might be, might or should be considered in a setup like this. There's, I think, hundreds of reference architectures. You typically get the Visio or PDF file as well. Some of those are a little bit outdated, so, so you have to understand what you're doing, but I, I feel it's a nice addition to everything else. Do you use that one as well, or you, you have some other resources? Uh, so I use AAC or Azure Architecture Center for quite a few things. And, but it, I mean, it depends, right? In my current role, I don't do a lot of deployments of complex architectures anymore. Um, but so that that's one uh, well-architected framework. I know we talked about that a lot in, in the podcast. That's something that comes back to me every day. I love well-architected framework for Azure. Um, that comes with a lot of good things. And th there was a refresh of that recently. And I think we'll probably do an episode on that refresh as well um, at some point. The the one thing that I like about it is, with especially after the refresh, it's the clarity. Like you go in and it's like, this is what I need to figure out. Help me figure it out. And it's going to guide you through uh, you know, designing things properly. So if you need to design for security, there's a security pillar and you can go through that. There's a checklist with that that will guide you through the considerations and, and recommendations you need to understand for building a more secure design for your workloads. 
Um, so I, I use the well architecture framework a lot. Um, Azure Architecture Center, yes. Uh, what I love about that is the uh, it comes with kind of a, a bunch of reference architectures and example workloads and example things you can deploy. And some of these things you need to modify to fit your specific needs, but it it does come with you know a prepared uh, kind of architecture where you can say, All right, let's deploy this thing and then modify it or modify the template a little bit first and then deploy it because it might fit 80% of our use cases. And then we just have to kind of bridge that final 20% gap. Um, so you don't have to do everything ground up. So I think that's a good advice. Think about when you figured out the things we just talked about previously, where understanding the business use case, understanding what you're looking for, you know, you have the tools to start shaping things up and, and drawing things up. Uh, the approach is also take a look at architecture center, what's already there, because you might find architectures that fit the bill 80% or even 50% of what you are trying to achieve. Then you can just modify that to get a good kind of entry point, and then you modify that to fit the needs of you know the rest of your 50% or 20%, whatever it is. Um, and then the well-architected framework is something that is not something you do only when you design something and say, hey, I need to take a look at the well-architected. Um, but this is something that should live as a guiding principle next to you throughout you know, the full life cycle of your workloads. So that's something that you have both when you design and when you operate your stuff in the cloud, but specifically when you when you design it. So I think those two things are, are definitely uh, definitely important for me to uh, uh, to highlight because I use them a lot. Yeah, for me, WAF or Well Architecture Framework, it's great also for trying to pinpoint an exact design choice. So I'm thinking about MFA for this and this scenario, for this and this settings. Is there other considerations that I might not be up to speed on or something that I'm not capable of thinking right now? So WAF often outlines those thinking areas for you, but you need to search for that a little bit. I wish that the Microsoft Learn platform search would be a little bit better because now it typically just searches for the title of the page, not through the whole content. So again, I go to Google and, 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 and search for WAF and point that to the Microsoft Learn base URL to get the proper results. But still, the content is great. It's, it's very helpful beyond just visualizing something and really understanding about something. And one of the biases that I tend to find from myself, but I also see this in others designing architectures, is that the most familiar technologies tend to be your number one choices. So if you're more familiar with Azure SQL, you're obviously going to be inclined to add that in the in the design for data store instead of Cosmos DB or Postgres or something else, because you know Azure SQL, you know the pricing, you know how it scales. So there's no point in even considering Cosmos DB unless there's a specific feature you need from that one. And I think it's fine, but I always like to challenge myself a little bit and think, is there anything else or am I just going with the one that I know best, but is this really the best option for this architecture? Alrighty, uh, in closing, I, I feel one of the big things for any architectures that you're doing is that you shouldn't be doing that alone. So you can do the visualization alone. There's there's not much value in you doing the visualization and somebody sitting next to you for two hours because it's a lot of back and forth. 
But once you have those in place, once you have the thinking in place, I feel you need to communicate clearly and often and actively to all of the stakeholders. This is what I'm thinking. Can you spot something? Can you modify this? Can you build from this? And I feel that makes the architecture a success when, when you can gather everybody's thoughts and considerations in there. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good kind of thought to round things off. I, I collaborate. Make sure you have alignments, alignment with stakeholders in your project, alignment with you know whoever is owning kind of the platform. Uh, so if if you're a, an enterprise, you have a big company. Make sure the design choices you're proposing are aligned with you know the overarching kind of um, you know technical platform guidelines or principles, if you will. So if you have a different team architecting a, a workload and you're designing that, make sure you do that in alignment with all the capable kind of policies and things. Like you mentioned before, uh, if you're doing this in isolation or if you're doing this for, a, you know, you have a resource group to deploy into, you might not see the kind of invisible values of the management group policies that are being trickled down. You might be a restriction saying, hey, you can only deploy into West Europe, period. Uh, it might be a, a policy deployed in the subscription to do that. You will figure that out the hard way if you try to deploy a multi-region deployment and you don't have that access and the policy tells you no. So coming back to that point of communicating is really important. Make sure you understand the requirements, the capabilities, any constraints, uh, but also get the buy-in from everyone. So 100% agree with all those reflections. Excellent. I think this is all we had for now on architectures. We'll add a couple of links in the show notes on some of the stuff that we mentioned. The last bit, the unexpected question. Toby, it is your turn to ask me the unexpected question. Yeah, and I, I think I've got a an interesting one here. So if you were to compete in the Olympics, but it had to be a sport or activity that you're, you're absolutely terrible at, what would your Olympic event be? Great question. I'm thinking winter or summer Olympics. And, well, it doesn't really matter <laughs> because regardless of, of which activity it would be, I probably couldn't say, yeah, I'm the best at this one, <clears throat> but I suck with that one. Mm, I'm thinking hurdles. I've never tried those for real. And on the TV, when you see the athletics just sprinting through and so effortlessly jumping over, it looks so easy. But then when you when when you walk next to one and you see how high they are, it's <laughs> like, yeah, you're supposed to run as fast as you can and jump at the same time and not lose any of your speed or velocity and continue running. I'd probably try that one and I know that I would I would crash into the first one, but I think it's still allowed in the rules that it doesn't really matter if you crash, but you just have to be fast. So I would probably try try with pure power here as well. Just <laughs> just run through them, collect them all on the way, and and get to the finish line with is it nine or ten hurdles that they have. Just pick them all up and continue running. That would be <laughs> my choice. I I see this in front of me. You just run through them all and pick them up, and then at the end, over the finish line, you're just doing bicep curls with them. It's like, yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. And I would still be the last one, obviously, but at least I would have ten hurdles in there, or nine, or how many it's going to be. All best. <laughs> Alrighty. Thanks for joining us. See you next week. All right. See you then.